If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you have a phone or some sort of gadget, you're welcome to find it there as well. Straining for an opening illustration for this sermon, but I'm going to give it a shot. All right, we've got a little dog at home. Her name is Penny, and Penny stays inside generally, and uh, we love her. Sometimes we let her out into the backyard, and she does her thing out there, and then sometimes she will escape into the front yard. And she is, if you will, doing, well, I'm not, I shouldn't say it like, I was going to say doing her father's business, but that's not what I mean. I mean she's out there protecting our home. She's doing a good thing. She is chasing away squirrels. She is watching out for those stray cats in the neighborhood. She, little Penny, about this big, yapping dog is keeping us safe. She is on mission for God. But sometimes we need, we need Penny to come back on inside. Right? It's all right when she's in the backyard, but when she's out front doing her thing, we need her to come back inside, and it's quite easy to get done. Penny, come here. No. Penny, come here. That's what I do. It doesn't work. You know what works? You want a treat? Boom. So easy to distract Penny. From her good work of protecting our home. You want a treat? Sometimes it's just as easy for us to get distracted, isn't it? And probably there's lots of words that the world could yell at us, that the enemy could call out to us. But is it not true that certainly one of those words is, you want some money? We're out following Jesus, faithfully, joyfully, seeking to help others do the same, giving our life to him and to his purposes for our life. We're prioritizing him, prioritizing his gospel, his word, his people, his mission. You want some money? <laughs> Just as quickly as we can. It's not merely the money, but it's also the things that we can do with the money. We can buy a bigger house and buy nicer clothes and pay for college and pay off those bills and get some newer, better, faster, newer, better, faster, cooler, bigger stuff. Because doesn't life consist in the abundance of riches? Of course not. Well, we are in Revelation chapter 3, and it seems to me at least this church had gotten distracted by money. Thank you to the worship team, to Mark, to Kristen, and all of them. They gave us a great preview of where we will be, Lord willing, next week in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 when we will 
into the throne room of God. We finish up these letters, these prophetic messages from Jesus to the seven churches of Revelation. We're in chapter 3, verse 14, and I think we're quickly going to see that material prosperity guarantees no spiritual security. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, of course, this is the risen, exalted Lord Jesus saying to John, the apostle, write this down for the church of Laodicea, but of course it is for all. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's for us too. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the New American Standard reads, beginning of the creation of God. The word is, is best translated ruler of the creation of God. It goes right back to what was said about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here's Jesus, the one who was faithful who bore true witness to Jesus or to God and to his ways and through his faithful life, death upon the cross, resurrection from the dead, and exaltation to the right hand of God, he is the ruler over the creation of God. He rules over all things. And he says this in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Better translated, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus wishes that they were cold or hot, but they are, in his words, lukewarm. And because of it, he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. For the longest time, until now, I understood this really as most modern readers would understand this illustration that Jesus uses here. That, that cold means someone who is lifeless, aloof, hard-hearted toward God the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the like. That's, that's somebody that's cold. They're, they're, they're cold towards the gospel. They're hard-hearted towards the gospel. They have no, no life towards the gospel. And of course, someone who is hot is someone who is fervent and ardent and enthusiastic about the gospel and about Christ and his ways. And then we modern readers, we would think of someone who is lukewarm then as half-hearted, indifferent, vacillating. Sometimes they're hot, sometimes they're cold, you know, they're just kind of lukewarm. That's how I've always understood the passage, and it may well be that. Maybe one of the best things going for it is that Jesus in verse 19 says, those whom I love and reprove, I reprove and discipline, therefore be, be zealous. So he's calling upon, if this is the proper interpretation, the lukewarm, the indifferent, vacillating Christian to be zealous. 
But the context suggests that only lukewarm is a bad thing. Hot is a good thing, according to Jesus, and cold is a good thing, according to Jesus. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Another interpretation that may get a little bit closer is to localize this really to Laodicea. To Laodicea's north was the city of Hierapolis, and they were famous for the hot water springs that were there, laden with minerals that people would go to Hierapolis and they would take baths in this hot water, and it was thought to have relaxing, soothing, and even medicinal purposes. To Laodicea's south and really southeast was Colossae. And in Colossae, they were famous for their cold water springs, much like our Frio River, a little further west from here. You go to the Frio River, and it's cold water. It's the Frio River, and it is refreshing. And you could drink the water and be blessed by the water. But Laodicea, it's understood, did not have its own springs of water, whether hot or cold, and so they would if you will, pipe in water from about five miles away, and it was lukewarm. And so, with that sort of interpretation, the imagery isn't that Laodicea, these believers, this church was half-hearted, but they were useless and ineffective. They you know, the, the hot waters of Hierapolis, they were very useful. You could, you could bathe and be soothed and have medicinal purposes. And the cold waters of Colossae, they were very refreshing. You could drink it and be refreshed, but, but nothing much of the water there in Laodicea. And so it's not that they were half-hearted, but they were useless or ineffective. And that interpretation can be attractive as well, but it doesn't fit the context either. Because apparently, Jesus, um, when talking about the hot water, he doesn't spew it out of his mouth because it lacks soothing medicinal purposes. He, he spews it out of his mouth because of its temperature. It, it's not hot. He, he was looking for a hot drink, but it was lukewarm, and so he's going to spew it out. So, so some believe that this is probably the best interpretation, not to simply ground it in Laodicea's local condition, but the broader practices of the Greco-Roman world, and maybe we might say even our own. And it's this, that this is a picture of a meal, if you will, in which drinks were served. And drinks at a meal, if the host could manage it, were not served lukewarm. They were served either hot or cold, depending on the occasion and depending on the climate. Diners, much as we do today, wanted something cold when it was hot, and they wanted something hot when it was cold. So Jesus is looking here at the Laodicean church and is not 
saying that they are half-hearted, but there's something about them that makes their conduct repulsive to him. It's like expecting to get an ice-cold glass of lemonade or iced tea, and you bring it to your mouth because that's what you know it's going to be, and lo and behold, it's not even, it, it, it's lukewarm, and you go, oh. Or you're looking for a hot cup of hot chocolate. Maddie, my 11-year-old, has been after me. She can't wait. She, she can't wait for it to get cold outside because she wants to go to a football game over at Legacy Stadium and get their hot chocolate. She loves their hot chocolate. But she doesn't want to get it now because you go over a football game and it's 100 degrees. But she can't wait for it to get cold because she wants hot chocolate. And imagine if it was cold and she's got her coat on and we go get her some hot chocolate and she takes it to her mouth only to find. It's not hot, but lukewarm. And so again, Jesus apparently is not looking at the Laodicean church and bummed out because of their lukewarmness, their um, half-heartedness, their vacillating between the two. He's not looking at them and saying, you're useless. He's, he's looking at them and saying, there's something about your conduct that I don't like at all. In fact, it's going to make me, again, spit you out of my mouth. The Greek word is emeo. We get a word called emetics, which is a medicine we take when we want to induce what? Spit? No. When we want to induce vomiting, you take an emetic and you, that's the Greek word here. Some of your translations may have it. I will vomit you out of my mouth. We might say in our vernacular, it makes me sick. And so we ask, well, what is it, Jesus? What is it about the Laodicean church that you say, I wish that you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and I don't like it. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What is it? Verse 7, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Goodness. They were prosperous. They had become rich. And let's just admit, for most of us in the room, if not all of us, this is us. This is not the uber-rich in American culture. Let's compare ourselves to those around the world. And I don't know the math, but we're probably all in the top 1% of those in the world. And so let's not read this about somebody else. This is us. I'm rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Their prosperity had led them to a sense of self-sufficiency. I don't need God or His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I don't need his people. I don't need his word. I'm good. And that's a real danger with money, isn't it? We see it over and over again. Here's just a few. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Just a brief word on that note on that word, contentment. It's the most oft used word in relationship to money in the New Testament. When it comes to money and stuff and things, God wants us to be content with what we have rather than grasping for what we don't. But Paul goes on. For we brought nothing into the world and we, can take it, we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Scary, huh? You want some money? Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 and 9. Two things I have asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. One, keep deception and lies far from me. Two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full. Rich and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Solomon says here, or maybe it's Agur there in chapter 30 of Proverbs, that being full, having riches, has a real danger to it. That I can begin to think, who's the Lord? I don't need him. Or that I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Remember Jesus in Mark chapter 4? Talking about the sower who went out to sow the seed and it fell among different kinds of soil. The fell by the road, fell by rocky soil, fell among the thorns. Others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I think I'm going to say more about that in just a second. But Jesus burst their bubble here. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know. You don't need anything. I'm good. And Jesus says you do not know. You are wretched and miserable and poor 
and blind and naked. Listen, he's, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. There's a real danger for us in our prosperity to think we're better than we are. Jesus just wants to remind us, listen, apart from me, the one you seemingly have no need of, outside of me, you're in a mess. You are wretched. That's a good translation. It's not very politically correct these days, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch like me. Funny things get done with that song. You've probably seen it before. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a worm like me. They changed the word. They didn't like wretch. Or amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. There's one more. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and set me free. We don't want to talk about ourselves as being wretches. But there it is. There it is on the lips of Jesus. Apart from me, wretched. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Jesus says, apart from me, you're a wretch and you're miserable, pitiable, and you're poor and blind and naked. I don't have any need. In fact, you are poor in the things of God. You have so very little. My take on life is the right one. My perspective, the way I see things, is the right way. And Jesus says, no, you're blind. You don't see as you ought to see when it comes to this sort of thing. Don't I look good? Check out my threads, say the rich. I remember Tara and I years ago were at a North Texas football game and we were sitting among some of my buddies that I played ball with and, and here came another one of my buddies that had, he was our punter and he was really good and he played in the NFL for a long time and at that time he was still in the NFL. He was making good money and you could tell by the clothes he was wearing. And he looked good and he came walking up the steps and Tara noted, ooh, look at those clothes, those look good. Jesus says, you're naked. Now, briefly, what to say about this? Listen, at least a little bit. Work is good. Work is a gift from God that all of us are to engage in in one way or another, even if it's the good work of being at home, raising up those kiddos. Gainful employment is good. God intends for gainfully employed saints to make money and in many, many instances to make good money. Nothing wrong with that. It is 
not a biblical thing to say rich equals unrighteous, poor equals righteous. In, in the Bible, there are righteous rich and there are unrighteous rich. There are righteous poor and there are unrighteous poor. And so it is not a bad thing for you to work. It is a good thing. It is not a bad thing for you to make money. It is a good thing. And it's not a, necessarily a bad thing for you to make lots of money. Jesus has instructions for those of us who might be prosperous, which is most likely all of us, that we're to be generous to those in need. We are to support his gospel work and, in fact, even to enjoy it, knowing that it is a gift from him. But in all of that, we've got to be careful, right? If we're not careful about it, if we don't recognize how distracting it can be and deceiving it can be. The Bible paints a dangerous picture. Just some of the phrases earlier. They fall into many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. They can wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many a pang. They can say, who's the Lord? The word of God in their heart can be choked out and they become unfruitful. And so their material prosperity did not equal spiritual security. So Jesus gives wise correction, I think, and he says, look to me for your most valuable assets. In verse 18, I advise you, if this shoe fits, I advise you to buy from me. Now, the fact that Jesus says buy from him doesn't imply that we have the means to secure benefits from him. The point is that he is the source of life's most valuable assets. Look to him for these sorts of things. Gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Gold refined by fire is the purest of gold, right? It's the best of gold. And obviously Jesus is using symbolic language here where we have to fill it in, but surely is it not? Relationship with him. The forgiveness of sins. Intimacy with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Is it not the perspective on life that he gives? Is it not the purpose in life that he gives? Is it not eternal, spiritual things that he gives that is the pure gold? Come to me for the very most valuable of resources. You who are poor, I will make rich with my spiritual blessings. And come to me and I'll give you white garments so that you may clothe yourself. They were poor, Jesus says, I'll make you rich. They were naked, Jesus says, I will clothe you with white garments. The purity of his cleansing of our sins 
the removal of the humiliation that comes from our sins. He says, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. This is just a good reminder. I know that some of you or all of us have sinned in ways against the Lord that just make us feel dirty and we wonder, can it ever be washed away? And if you know Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of Christ, it has been washed away. Not just the sin itself and the guilt, but the shame that came along with it. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how shameful you feel, embarrassed, the blood of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross of Calvary is sufficient for any and all of it. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Come to me and I will give you pure gold. You will be rich. And come to me and I will give you white garments. You will be clean. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They were poor, I'll make you rich. You were, blind, you were naked, I'll, I'll give you garments to wear. You were blind. And if you'll come to me, you'll be able to see. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They were walking in darkness. I think it's the Matthew passage. I should have looked at it. But remember when Jesus is talking about serving God and mammon, money, and he can't do them both. And then he begins to talk about the lamp of the eye. And I think he has in mind there that when the lamp of the eye is clear, we can see. He, he ties money to our ability to see. That we, we have the right perspective on things. When we are looking to money and trusting in money and relying on money and getting distracted by money and building our hope in money, we've lost all perspective. We're blurry when it comes to that which is most wonderful and glorious and valuable. But when we go to Christ for his healing, we begin to see. We see the temporal nature of our money and the things that it secures. And we see the eternal nature of God, Christ, the gospel, and his purposes. And then Jesus offers a loving invitation here. So his wise correction was to go to him and, and secure that which is most valuable, spiritual riches, in verse 19 and 20, here's a loving invitation. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, 
be zealous and repent. You got to love it here because this is, Jesus is so strong in his assessment. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And yet, this is coming from where? A heart of love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We've seen this already a couple of times. You remember back in chapter 1. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. I think I said then, but I want to say it again. John could have just as easily said, to him who released us from our sins by his blood. And, and we'd have never thought anything of it. We'd have preached that with power. But he said, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. In chapter 3, verse 9, when he was talking to the church of Philadelphia, how they were being persecuted and how in, in the end things are going to be switched, they're going to be vindicated. Verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And here Jesus says, those whom I love, I will prove in discipline. It's just like you and I do with our kids. When they're out of line and we reprove them and discipline them, it is because we love them. A few quotes here. This one's Got some high theology to it, but it's wonderful. Tom Hicks, pastor, wrote this. In his great love, and so he, he grounds this in, in the love of Christ. In his great love, the eternal Son of God assumed a human nature and took his wrath upon himself according to his human nature, graciously to save sinners from the eternal judgment and wrath they deserve. Praise Jesus. The eternal Son of God who assumed human nature, that's Christmas, took his wrath, his wrath, towards us. He took his wrath upon himself. That's Good Friday. Graciously to save sinners from the eternal judgment and wrath they deserve. Praise Jesus Christ for his great love. My buddy Will Rambo pastors a church in Tupelo, Mississippi. He wrote to his people not long ago. and Anyway, he wanted to remind them you are not alone. You are 
love. My buddy Chuck Geschwind that we, we planted the church together in Jonesboro, Arkansas, way back in 2002, was listening to a podcast that he was on recently, and he quoted Augustine. He said, the pivotal factor, Augustine said, the pivotal factor in any church is the felt experience of the love of God. Oh, may God help you and me to to experience, to, to have the felt experience of the love of God. God loves you. And His Son, Jesus Christ, loves you. If you are in Him, if you're one of His children through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you are loved. Paul wrote, it's one of my favorite verses, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls us. Not our love for Christ, Christ's love for us. The love of Christ controls us. It's a fun Greek word, soon echo. It means gathers around us, hymns us in. It, it controls us. The love of Christ. Praise God. So Jesus says, I, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Remember, Jesus is is saying this to his church. This verse is often used, maybe even misused in evangelistic terms as if Jesus were saying this to non-Christians. This verse is is in the context of Jesus saying it to his people, to his money-distracted people. It's money had, had, had so affected them, infected them, whatever, that, that they, were, they had become self-sufficient. I, I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I don't need his people. I don't need his word. Jesus paints an image. It's as if you put me outside the house. And he's saying to his people in their wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked state, they're that, that by, by living with such a perspective and being so distracted, it's as if you've put me outside the home. But those I love, I reprove and discipline. I stand at the door and knock. It's an invitation from Jesus, I believe, to you and to me, if this shoe fits, to... Repent from that sort of perspective on life. And what's the deal? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
that apparently they had not kept the main thing the main thing. They'd been distracted by something else. It's, it's an invitation from Jesus for you and me to repent and, and, and put the main thing back as the main thing of our life. And to you and to me, when we do that, he says, I'll come to him and we'll dine with him and he with me. I think earlier the, the hot and cold thing was was dining imagery, and here obviously is dining imagery. The very best of fellowship is what? It's over a meal. Is it not? When you have a good meal with good friends, and you just linger around the table because of the laughter and the conversation and the intimacy, it's just a whole lot of fun. Maybe you move to the living room, and you continue that meal together because it's just so sweet. Jesus wants us to experience that sort of intimacy and communion with him. I think now, but he probably also has in mind that future marriage supper of the Lamb. The end of the age and the bringing and the making of all things new. When we will sit down, if you will, and enjoy fellowship and intimacy with him forever and forever. It requires, though, seemingly from Jesus, zeal and repentance. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I ask myself and I'll ask you, are you keeping the main thing the main thing? How many times have I quoted Prof. Howard Hendricks to us when he would say to us at Dallas Seminary, fellas, my greatest fear for you is not that you will go out and fail. My greatest fear is that you will go out and succeed at the wrong thing. That you will climb the ladder of success only to find out in the end that it was leaning against the wrong building. I think there's a grace to us from Jesus here, and it allows us, on the way up the ladder, to stop. Before we get to the top, to stop and look around and go, okay, Am I, is my ladder leaned up against the right building? And if it's not, I can come back down that ladder and start climbing the ladder headed up the right building. How do you define that? How do you measure that? How do you, how do you, I don't know. But if we think the shoe may fit, it's worth talking to Jesus about. Lord, do I have my perspective right? Is my ladder leaning against the wrong building? Do I I need to come down and, and, and head up 
the other building. We want to, I think, don't we want to value above all things God, His glory, His gospel, His word, His people, His mission? And again, gainful employment is a part of that, and making money is a part of that, and making lots of money for some of you is part of that. But there's a danger in it that I think Jesus is calling us to consider. Verse 21, here's an enduring promise. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We know of Jesus that he lived and died and rose and then ascended, exalted to the Father's right hand from which he reigns and will come again. And when he does, according to Revelation chapter 11, one of my favorite verses, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And we, his people, will reign with him. I will grant to him to sit down with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Closing illustration is from the Lord Jesus Christ. From Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray.
Father, would you give to us wisdom? I know my own heart. I want to make more money. I want more, 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 more. I'm sure all of us would say something similar. Would you please give us great wisdom on how to navigate that desire? Discontent creeps into this. Envy creeps into this. Greed creeps into this. Bills to pay. Things to do. Retirements to enjoy. Give us wisdom. And with all of our prosperity, might we not be drawn away from you and realize that we are desperate for you. Help us to keep our priorities right, even as we work and as we gain. That it could be said of us that we have kept the main thing, the main thing. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is just like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. We want to love God. We want to love others. We want to joyfully follow Jesus, help others do the same. We know the tendency of our hearts to get distracted so quickly and often so much by money and all that that implies. So we thank you for your love for us, for inscripturating this now for 2,000 years to remind us and to rebuke us challenge us, to call us up to the best of life, following you and loving others. So, Lord, may we be able to say, riches I heed not, nor man's empty purse. Thou mine inheritance, thou and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.